Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, hello, friends. From me, I offer you good afternoon. Because, again, we're doing things a little bit different this week. Last Sunday, um, we offered a pre-recorded audio of my message because I was not feeling great. And thankfully, I am feeling wonderful now, but just to offer an abundance of caution, we're going to be pre-recording my message this afternoon, this Saturday afternoon, um, so that you all can gather tomorrow morning uh, in worship. And if you are a guest with us this morning, I hope that you have felt welcomed by our community, as welcomed as you can in this unique digital format. We are, um, it's a privilege to have you with us, and we're grateful that you are here. Um, If you're a guest with us, we are pretty far into a series, uh, the second part of a series titled Rooted and Grounded. We've been living into the grounded section of this series. You can go back and check out those messages from the last several months, but this morning, We are going to be zeroing in on the ancient community of the Thessalonians, and we're going to be looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church community. So friends, as I read, I invite you to listen for the word of God from the letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, where Paul writes to this ancient church. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who've died. For the Lord himself with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, with the sound of God's trumpet will descend from heaven and the the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, we will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And concerning times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you. You yourselves, you know very well that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace, there is security, then suddenly will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Good and gracious God, God of new life, 
in this season of the resurrection, we continue to marvel at you and the hope that we have in your future, in your goodness, in your plans for your good creation. In this time, God, I pray that these words that I have prepared might be your word for your people in this time, and I'd ask God that you would speak through them and as and where necessary that you would speak in spite of me. And I pray, God, that as I preach the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of all of our hearts across this globe would indeed be found good, right, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. God, our rock, God, our redeemer, God, our savior. All of this we pray in the name of the Christ, our hope. And everyone typed, amen. Well, a text like this reminds me yet again that sometimes religious traditions can either willfully or just kind of unintentionally kind of go blind to certain realities that are right there present within their own tradition. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian community, it, it, it illustrates two of these areas or ways that I want to show us this morning. And to get at the first, we have to back up to chapter two. We read from chapter four for our main reading, but in chapter two, we encounter Paul and he is reflecting back on his ministry of founding, of planting this, this church in, in, in Thessalonica years and years ago. But what's so striking in chapter two as Paul is doing this is the way he describes his ministry with these people as he looks back on it. Listen to what he says. Chapter two, halfway through verse seven into verse eight, we were gentle among you. Listen to this. Like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you have become that dear to us. Paul wrote, we were gentle among you like a nurse, tenderly caring for her children. Paul said that. And let us not forget, this is one of Paul's undisputed letters. Scholars almost universally agree that he, yes, indeed, wrote it. But, but not only is his authorship universally agreed upon, it's also universally agreed upon that Thessalonians is the oldest document contained within the New Testament. Now think about this for a minute. If you were to read chronologically through the New Testament, if you were to kind of rearrange all the books, oldest to the, to the last written, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians would be the first thing you read, okay? And as I thought about this, I found it quite striking that that means that the very first metaphor, chronologically speaking, in the New Testament for pastoral ministry, the planting, the ministering, to a congregation, with a congregation, it's not shepherd. And I know liturgically speaking, this is Good Shepherd Sunday. It's not rabbi, it's not priest. No. The very first metaphor that we get in the oldest document contained within our New Testaments is a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. Huh. 
Sometimes religious traditions go blind to realities that are right there in front of them in the text. Nurse and mother are the oldest recorded images that we have of pastoral ministry. Fascinating. I mean, Paul, he he could have said he was like a physician, a physician treating his own children. But he doesn't. He, he, He picks this almost exclusively female profession of nursing, and then he takes it a step further and it implies that it's a mother. And I don't know about y'all, but I've never been on a church men's retreat where they preached on this text. I've never had this text sort of brought up before me in this way. But the implications are pretty profound. Apparently Paul, a man... He at least seems to believe that he had the capacity to offer a level of care to his congregation that was as that of a nurse and a mother caring for her own children. Which I think could lead us to believe that the, the inverse is also true. Perhaps a, a female pastor can offer fatherly support when it is needed to a congregation. Maybe by the power of the Holy Spirit, some of these old lines are not nearly as important as maybe we once thought that they were. This morning's reading reminds me that we can so easily go blind to to these realities that are right there in the text. The fact that the oldest metaphor that we have of pastoral ministry in the New Testament is a nurse tending to the needs of her children, remarkable. And of course, this would have been especially startling for Paul's Thessalonian audience because this is a very, very Greek city, right? With a very male-dominated culture of philosophy. And, you know, philosophy in ancient Greece, it was was sort of understood to be medicine for the human soul, which kind of makes sense why Paul's using this sort of medical analogy of a nurse, The philosopher is assumably this this sort of philosophical physician who can treat the ignorant masses of their ailments. The Greeks believed philosophy had this sort of like healing property for what was wrong inside of the human psyche. It was our wrong thinking, our wrong philosophy that made us internally ill, and and the wisdom of the great philosophers would help the the human find this inner healing, this need for medicine, for the soul. But perhaps what Paul knew was that oftentimes, not to our surprise, these sort of philosophical physicians were oftentimes arrogant and Maybe sometimes they were more like reckless surgeons, kind of tearing down those who were listening to them, tearing down the ignorant masses who did not believe as they did or did not have the proper perspective. I I, I find it probably easy to believe that it was pretty common in Thessalonica to observe sort of these big philosophical public orators, unafraid to humiliate those who would conflict them. But it's fascinating to me that Paul, someone who actually could have gone toe-to-toe with this culture, Paul is a, 
he's a philosopher's philosopher. He's a theologian's theologian. He is a Pharisee's Pharisee. He is as learned as they come in the ancient world. But he doesn't even go that route. He takes an entirely different path. Paul could have compared himself to a great physician who is tending to his children. But interestingly, in chapter 2 of Thessalonians, the oldest book in the New Testament, it's almost as though Paul sort of reveres that, that office and stands to the side and, and lets God be the great physician and he'll be the attending nurse helping to care for the medical needs of the children. We're blessed here at Eastside to have several nurses as a part of our membership, and it always warms my heart to know that if I call any one of them, they almost always immediately pick up because the nurses at Eastside know that if Pastor Tim is calling them out of the blue without a scheduled reason, it probably means one of his children is bleeding from the jugular. Oh, that was an exaggeration, but... It, it probably does mean that we're trying to debate, like, do we need to go to Choa? Or are we okay? Let's call, let's call somebody from East Side who can give us some insight. And they almost always pick up the phone, and it's a beautiful thing because our nurses love our East Side village of children. But to see a nurse with their own child tending to their own child is truly a beautiful, beautiful thing. It reminds me of last Sunday as we reflected on the beginning of Paul's letter to the Colossians and the fact that Paul, in all of his letters, begins with this simple greeting, the simple blessing of grace and of peace. We talked about how in this season of COVID-19 and this pandemic and the craziness of the world, if there's one thing right now that we as a people of faith need to offer one another and to offer every human being that we're social distancing from and a mask six feet away from us on the sidewalk is a disposition of grace, a grace that is seeking to bring about God's shalom, God's peace, God's goodness in this world. And the medical community, man, they are... There are people who are tirelessly seeking to bring about grace and peace right now. We need to continue to pray for them. Every one of Paul's letters begin with this opening blessing of grace and peace. And now more than ever, as we continue to sort out what all this is going to look like, we need to be a gracious people. In our letter this morning, the most ancient letter in the New Testament, the oldest of all of Paul's writings... He does not liken his pastoral ministry to the patriarchy, to um, sort of an authoritarian figure, to sort of he's the one in charge and everyone else is not, but instead as a healer, as, but not even like the, the big main doctor. No, that of the nurse who's at the bedside caring for the children. I think it's really beautiful. And I wonder if in part, part of the reason Paul sets this metaphor in their minds as they're reading this letter is because Paul knows why he needed to write this letter in the first place. These are an anxious people. These are a scared people. These are a fearful people. My own mother, um, when I was deeply troubled or anxious or worried as a child, she was just brilliant at 
comforting me, at helping me, at guiding me, at bringing me into a, a different state of mind, of being, of making me actually believe that it was going to be okay. As a parent, and those of you who are parents out there, aunts and uncles, or those of you who have children that are like family in your lives, you know how hard it is to watch kids struggle with anxiety. It's, it's heartbreaking. And the, part of the reason it can be so heartbreaking for us as adults is because we ourselves know what it feels like to struggle with anxiety. I know that I do. And I don't wish those feelings on any child, especially my own. Anxiety, it's not a fun state. It's not an enjoyable place to be. And my mom, she did. She just had this gift. And she could calm me down. She could help me recenter. She could help me focus. And it's not that my dad didn't try. I mean, he would try. It's not that I don't try. But, you know, Elizabeth, can, she just has a thing. And I don't know. But sometimes in this season, I'm reminded, as I've been reminded, and I am reminding we need to remind each other how important it is to just breathe. During this COVID season, many of us literally have just had to stop ourselves and remind ourselves to breathe. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes my anxiety makes me hold my breath and I don't even realize I'm doing it. And right now we're especially fearful because of what the air might be carrying in it, what could be hanging in the air. And we wear our masks. And some of us, when we wear our masks, we feel like we're not breathing as well because we have the masks on. And some of us don't even want to go outside of our houses. And it's an anxious time in our world and in our lives, and we all know that. And some of you who are listening are still fortunate enough to have parents in your life that you can pick up the phone and call, and they can still help calm you down, even as adults. And that's a beautiful thing. And sometimes the best thing we can do for one another right now is just to remember, you got to breathe. And all God's people typed. Amen. Well, again, it's pretty universally agreed upon the purpose of Paul's letter to this Thessalonian community. And the main reason that Paul is writing them is because they were having some really deep-seated anxieties. This ancient community, they were sort of operating under this particular understanding of Christ. And they understood Christ to have come, Christ to have died, to have risen, to have resurrected, to have ascended to the realm of God. And they believed that within their lifetime, Christ was going to return in glory. And they probably believed this because the Apostle Paul, in the early days of his ministry, probably also believed this and taught this to them. There was a, a very common belief in the early church, this, this, this leaning into a, the idea of a rapid return of the resurrected Christ. And people believed that before they saw death, before their loved ones saw death, that, that the Christ was going to return and the world was going to be transformed. But now to return to my opening statement, sometimes we religious people, we can either intentionally or unintentionally go, go blind to realities that are, that are kind of right there in our tradition, right there in our scriptures. 
We see this really painfully illustrated right now in so many popular misunderstandings about about the so-called second coming of the Christ, the return of the Christ. From the Left Behind series, and for some of you that's so old you don't even know what that is now, but to, to dispensational theology, to people holding up doomsday, um, you know, signs at concerts and public events, saying that the, the Bible predicts that the end is coming, on and on and on. Our text this morning, it's actually Paul kind of saying one big giant no to all of that. And actually, little known fact for, for many folks is that this whole end of time, end of the world, left behind thinking, it's actually only about 100 years old. Uh, it's not even part of the grander trajectory of historic Orthodox Christianity across Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant denominations. It's a relatively new belief. Left behind sort of rapture theology, maybe some of you have heard. These people holding up doomsday prophecies about the end of the world. People supposedly using the Bible to predict this, that, or the other thing about what is to come. All of it. It's a rather new invention, and none of it is affirmed by Paul, especially in this text this morning. But it is true We need to reclaim a word here. It is true, though, that these earliest Christian communities that we have been studying throughout this grounded season, from Philippians to the Corinthians to the Colossians to the Thessalonians, they were, in a sense, hoping for the apocalyptic. Dun, dun, dun. I know that sounds crazy, right? Who would hope for the apocalypse? The thing about apocalyptic and apocalypse is that it's one of these words that in our world today, it's sort of gotten hijacked by media and by literary culture, and it's gotten spun to have this sort of very negative and scary connotation that actually has little to nothing to do with the etymology of the word itself. See, we generally associate the word apocalyptic or apocalypse with the end of the world, with the end of all things. In the film genre, of course, these days, it's less about the apocalyptic and more about the post-apocalyptic. This, this crazy fascination we human beings have with what comes after the end. Which is kind of ironic because if the apocalypse is the end, then there wouldn't really be anything after which I think kind of bears the bigger point. It means that our contemporary culture, human beings, movies, film, literature, it's not so much that we're fascinated by the idea of the obliteration of everything. That's boring. That's not even a good story. Now, what people are interested in, what people are fascinated by, is the radical, the radical transforming shake-up kind of blowing up of the status quo, and then what happens after that? What does the, the, the re-sorting of things look like on the other side of something that changes everything? It's not interesting if everything just gets incinerated in the apocalypse. That's a boring story. That's game over. 
But what if apocalypse, what if apocalyptic actually has a deeper meaning? And here's the thing, in ancient Judaism and, and, and subsequently in early Christianity, this word apocalypse, it wasn't actually a bad word. Because it actually just meant unveiling or revealing. An apocalyptic event was, it was uncovering, it was the revealing of that which is. It's, it's this grand revealing of, of what already is, but now we can see it. And in seeing it as it is, now we can see what comes next. If you've ever worked with a therapist, then you have maybe experienced this, this moment where you kind of both realize the therapist can't really help you until the two of you together have sort of reached that apocalyptic session. That session where you both come to the same place of revelation, of truth, this kind of great aha. That's what's going on here. I see it now. It's kind of rupturing. It can be very uncomfortable, actually. It can be painful. But sometimes it's in that rupturing, that pain, that, that, that uncovering, that, that then a therapist can actually help you because now they really get it and so do you. See, an apocalypse is sort of an unveiling where everybody's in now. Everybody sees what's going on, not just a select few. Or maybe an easier metaphor would be that of a, or example would be that of a medical doctor. If, if your doctor can't figure out what's going on because you're not being transparent with what's going on with you, then the doctor may be prescribing a course of treatment that's not actually what you need. You're going to be resistant to that because you know it's not what you need, but you know you also haven't actually worked with your doctor in uncovering what's really going on so that we can see what needs to be next. Because what you're afraid of, maybe, is that what actually needs to happen is going to be more painful, more sacrificial, take more of you than you necessarily want to give. But if you're honest with your doctor, then they know that that's the only way, the only thing that will get you to where you need to go to get you to what is next. Apocalyptic apocalypse, it's, it's this unveiling, it's this revealing, it's this, this opening up so that now finally some healing and transformation can get underway and we can get unstuck. This is much more how the ancient Jewish and Christian people understood the apocalyptic. They didn't see apocalypse as sort of the end of all things. They saw it as the, the revealing, the, the opening up of the ultimate goal of God's transforming and healing work for all of the cosmos. You might think of our, our planet. I mean, we're all thinking planetary right now, let's be honest. Let's say the planet's the patient, and God is, as we said earlier, maybe God is the great physician, and planet Earth doesn't really want to admit what's going on where and how there is sickness and injustice and pollution and selfishness and hatred and war and pandemic. And collectively, our planet, made up of billions and billions of cellular human beings, we don't want an apocalypse. We don't want a true unveiling. We're afraid to completely open up to the great physician because we're afraid of the massive amounts of change and transformation and undoing and redoing and, and just complete resortment of everything that that would require. 
Maybe we're afraid of how we're going to be asked by the great physician to change, to be open, to be revealed so that we might be healed, so that we might move forward and be whole. But the ancient Christians, they trusted that our great physician has the ultimate good and the best future in view for all of humanity. The earliest Christian communities, the Thessalonians, none the least, they held fast to this conviction that the apocalypse was a necessary next chapter in the world, that, that Christ's return was not something to be afraid of, but was going to actually be God's medicine through which God was ultimately going to heal the nations, restore a diseased world. And the Thessalonians, probably because Paul taught them this, believed that this great apocalyptic reality was going to happen within their lifetime. But in Paul's letter, he's addressing this really huge problem. Their church members were starting to die. And they were still fighting the good fight. They were still doing the work. And people were dying, and they were confused. They were experiencing this cognitive dissonance. Paul said this, and this is happening. And and they're anxious, and they're fearful, and they don't understand. Are they ever going to see those who have died again? Where is hope? How does all this work? How does all this unfold? Something seems wrong. Where is this glorious day of resurrection that Paul had promised? And here's what gets missed so easily in our reading this morning, friends. Paul, living into his role as a nurse, tending to his own children, her own children, he knows this congregation is scared. They're afraid that those who have fallen asleep have fallen asleep forever. So Paul himself, probably having had to do some revisions of his own theological expectations of what was going to happen with his lifetime, His first response to these people in the midst of their fear and their anxiety is to reiterate the Easter message. First and foremost, friends, beyond all else, above all else, remember the tomb is empty. We are an empty tomb people. It's almost like Paul, with a mother with a scared child, assuring them that it is going to be okay. Paul, he just begins by reminding this community they simply need to remember the tomb is empty, that Christ is living, is active even now. And then he sort of works into this, and, and, and honestly, y'all, we can't get all tangled up in dates and times and seasons. We don't know. We can't know that. We don't know exactly when and how all these things are going to happen. Paul says that it's going to be like a thief coming in the night. And I always used to have a really negative connotation with this part of Thessalonians until I rethought about it a little bit. And it occurred to me, nobody can stay up every night waiting for the thief. It's impossible. You will eventually fall asleep. Nobody can stay up every night watching for a thief. So maybe part of Paul's point is like, y'all just get on with your life. You just got to live. You got to do it. If the thief's, a thief's going to come, they're going to come. You can't stay up every night waiting for a thief. And then, what I love, though, is that Paul, he takes this image of the thief and he turns it on his head and he makes Jesus the grave robber. And I just think that's brilliant. 
Jesus is going to steal away all of our sadness, our fear, our anxiety. When we don't even know to expect it, it's going to come out of nowhere and God's going to show up and surprise us yet again with hope and with new life. So Paul says, Thessalonians, breathe. It's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. They're going to be okay. They are. Paul says, we don't mourn like those without hope. And he's making a nod to the Epicureans who would have been a very popular philosophical sect in that city. The Epicureans who believe that when you're dead, you're dead. Paul says, no, we don't say goodbye forever. We say goodbye for a season. And it's okay to mourn that. You should mourn that. But we don't mourn like those who are saying goodbye forever because our despair, our sorrow, our sadness, all of it is time stamped. All of it is limited. And in the resurrection of Christ, we have hope that someday all will be made new. So it's almost like Paul is like a wise mother kind of coaching a child stuck in anxiety, stuck in fear. And the mother's almost like, okay, okay, okay. We've been trying all of this. Here, stand up. Stand up. Now, go do something. Move. Move your body. Go do something. Go make something. Go build something. Go, go do something. You can't just sit. And there were people in that community, in the Thessalonians, Thessalonian community, who had stopped working altogether. And Paul's really frustrated by that. And they, they were stopped working because, I mean, why work? We're waiting on the second coming. And Paul's like, get back to work. What are you doing? It's like a parent with a child going, what are you doing? Get, get back to work. There's so much work to be done. It's almost as though Paul's going, there's so much work to be done on planet Earth. We don't, we're not just in a waiting room, people. Come on. We don't know when it's all going to happen, but right now, look in front of you. There's so much that can be done. So much good you can do right now, today, in the middle of a pandemic. I think part of the message of a text like this one for us right now, and we really don't know what all this is going to look like on the other side. We don't know how it's all going to shake out. And it might, in some ways, be better not to let your mind live there right now. Maybe part of what a text like this is saying is like, live in front of you. Be with the people who you're with. Be with the person who's six feet away from you and be fully present with them. Live the life in front of you. Practice resurrection now. Embody the kingdom of God that we hope to come fully in the way that you live your life right now in the middle of this pandemic. And you know what? If you live your life as a follower of Christ and you die as old age, that's okay. But don't waste time. Yes, we may be a people who believe in forever, but I believe that even in forever, God's going to be like, y'all don't waste time. It's all precious. It's all precious. And this pre-apocalyptic world, friends, is precious. And we have plenty of work to do right in front of us right now today. And here's the thing. The scriptures speak of a capital A type apocalypse, right? This sort of grand unveiling that will someday happen when all is revealed so that all can be healed, 
so that the great physician can, can bring all of creation forward into a new reality. But friends, before we get to that, right now, there are countless lowercase apocalypses in all of our lives, throughout our lives. And the, the beautiful thing about them is, is that if we see them properly, they can be unveilings, revealings. They can be these linchpin moments in our lives where we can turn, we can change, we can see it and we can go, oh, okay, yeah, I see it now. Yep, it's time. It's time to be different. It's time to embrace a different way to be human. You know, people keep talking about, um, you know, when life goes back to normal, when life goes back to normal, when life goes back to normal, almost to the point of like, I'm really tired of hearing about it because you know what, I hope life doesn't go back to normal. Because normal was broken and normal was leaving so many people outside of the help and the assistance and the care that they need in our, on our planet and in this world. Like, let's not go back to normal. Let's let this be a lowercase apocalypse on this planet and may, it, may none of us go back to being the same. I don't want to go back to being the same. I want to remember that in the apocalypse of the pandemic, I became different. I changed. And I don't know, I don't want to go back to normal. And I don't think that's the best thing for our planet. And I don't think that's the best thing for humanity. I hope that we wake up. I hope that we keep banging pots and pans for our healthcare workers. And I hope that we keep looking at those clear blue skies and wondering, huh, that's interesting. So, my prayer is that none of us get to go back to normal. May it be so in the name of God, the creator, God, the redeemer, God, the sustainer. And all God's people typed, amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.